Welcome back, young scientists. I'm Dr. Universe, and if you're anything like me, you've got lots of big questions about our world. On this episode, we're talking birds, touchscreen technology, and goosebumps. A big thanks to our kid narrator from Regional Theater of the Palouse. Artop is a proud sponsor of STEAM Learning. Discover the art of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. STEM makes life possible, and art makes it worth living. Support your local arts and humanities programs. Together, STEM is gaining STEAM. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Natalie, an RTOP theater kid. This question comes from Jasmine, 10, in Gainesville, Florida. How do birds know where to migrate? That's a great question. My friend Heather Watts is a researcher at Washington State University. She's investigating a very similar question as part of her research. I'm Dr. Heather Watts, and I study animal behavior. We work with birds, and we're interested in understanding things like how birds decide when to migrate or when to breed. What can you tell us about birds and how they know where to go on their first migration? What we think a lot of birds do the very first time they migrate is they have a program that tells them what direction to go and how far or how long to go in that direction. This is something that they inherit that is kind of programmed in that they don't have to learn. They can just do it the very first time. That's pretty cool. A lot of animals inherit different traits through DNA. For birds who migrate, they inherit a set of directions they know how to use. This genetic information is passed down from bird grandparents to bird parents to the offspring. Are there any other tools that birds use on their first migration? The other tool that birds can use the first time they migrate is using other birds that have done the migration before. So they can follow other birds to learn where to go. So once they've learned where to go, they can use what they've learned to return to the same spot. But not all birds return to the same spot each year. Some of the birds you study are called pine siskins, which are birds that don't always migrate to the same place. Can you tell us about them? A question I'm really interested that I don't, we don't know the answer to is, do they tend to go a particular direction? Like, do they have some program that tells them generally what direction to head or not? Or is it kind of unprogrammed what direction they should be heading? It's fun to work on an animal or a system that we, we know less about. It's challenging, but it does mean there's lots of new things we can learn. Thanks, Dr. Watts. We can't wait to hear what you and your team will discover next. Here's a science challenge for you. The next time you go for a walk or gaze out the window, see what birds you can spot. With help from a grown-up, see if you can find the name of the bird online or at the library. Finally, do a little research to find out how it migrates and discover the journey your bird takes. This next question comes from Florida. Nicholas, age 11, asks, how do touchscreens work? When I got your question, I decided to do a little experiment. First, I tapped my paw on his tablet and sent a message to a friend. Next, I put on a pair of wool mittens and started typing, but the screen didn't respond. Finally, I used a banana to see if I could use it to swipe the screen. It actually worked. To find out more about touchscreens, I visited one of my friends at WSU. My name is Raveen Shekhar and I would like to introduce myself as the father of a third grader, and I love teaching kids about technology. That's awesome. You're an associate professor at Washington State University who's very curious about technology and engineering. What can you tell us about touchscreens? No, nowadays, touchscreens are everywhere, from airports to doctor's office, vending machines. 
all of these different touchscreens need electricity. Some materials called insulators keep electricity from flowing, like the wool mittens. Then there are objects such as your finger or a banana that allow electricity to flow from one place to another. We call these conductors. If you think about this like, like a battery, right? Everybody knows a battery. If we look at a battery, we can see that it has positive charge, that little plus sign, on one end, and negative charge, that little minus sign, on the other end. Only when the battery has both positive and negative, then your device will work. So right now, our touch screen is like you have a negative, and then you have some material, and then... Materials like plastic and metal that make up the screen. There is no positive. Once your finger touches the touch screen, it, now there's a path to conduct electricity. It becomes positive, so now you it's like a battery and it starts responding to you. It's a software inside the device that takes over. So the software needs to be activated, and the activated command is your finger. Engineers call these kinds of touch screens that need conductors to create a path of electricity capacitive screens. There are also other kinds of touch screens, but maybe we'll investigate those another time. All right, young scientists, with help from an adult, maybe you can do a little investigation into touch screens too. Collect a few small items from around the house and find out if they're an insulator or a conductor. But it would be a cool thing to do. see which one works and which one does not work. Since the screens are quite fragile, you may want to use materials that will be gentle to your screen, like a cotton swab, an eraser, or a banana. Touch the objects to the screen to see what happens. Here's the next question. Nolan, seven and a half, in Richland, Washington, asked, Dr. Universe, why do we get goosebumps? Humans get goosebumps for a few different reasons, and one of those reasons has to do with temperature. My friend Ryan Driscoll, an assistant professor at Washington State University, is really curious about the inner workings of skin. He said he thinks about goosebumps at least once or twice a week. It's all part of the job. If you have hair, what it'll do is it'll either stand up or sit down. And if it stands up and it's still at an angle, right? We don't, it's not just standing up straight. A lot of times it's at an angle. The hairs that are tilted at an angle help trap the air close to the body, which can help warm you up. It's creating a kind of microenvironment around your skin. All the hair on your body grows out of little hair follicles in your skin. At the bottom of the follicle is a little hair factory that makes your hair. It's also attached to a tiny little smooth muscle called an erector pili. Sometimes when we get cold, that little muscle contracts or pulls on the hair follicle to make the hair on your arms stand up. If you're like me, maybe you've noticed that your hair also stands on its end when you sense some kind of danger. Certain dogs and cats and mice and hamsters, they have a higher density of hair follicles than we do. It's almost all hair. So if you, and they all have erector pilies. So if you could imagine that, you know, how does a rabbit stay warm during the winter? They have so much fur that they can manage that it really does create a, a microenvironment around that rabbit that keeps them safe. And that's the advantage of fur. While humans might not be as hairy as cats or dogs, they sometimes respond in a similar way when they sense danger. Animals have something called a fight or flight response, which means they can run away or face their fears. That's right, Natalie. Millions of years ago, your human ancestors were much hairier than humans are today. Goosebumps may also be a kind of leftover reflex from the days when your more hairy ancestors were experiencing that kind of fight or flight response. The next time you get goosebumps, take a close look at your skin. Did you know you were born with all the erector pilies and hair follicles you'll ever have? 
So when you get a scar, the hair and erector pili don't grow back. That's something that Driscoll and the research team at WSU are exploring in the lab. So what we're trying to do is trying to regenerate the erector pili. How do you regenerate the erector pili? How do you regenerate the hair follicle in a scar so that it, it does, it's not a scar anymore, it's actually regeneration? It's all part of the science that will one day help our bodies to heal better, including getting back to making goosebumps. That's all for this episode, friends. Thanks to all the kids who submitted a question and Natalie for that great narration. If you like what you heard here on the Ask Dr. Universe podcast, leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Washington State University researchers for helping with the science. And thanks to you for listening. You make this podcast possible. As always, kids can submit a science question for a chance to be featured at askdoctoruniverse.wsu.edu. That's A-S-K-D-R-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E dot W-S-U dot E-D-U. Who knows where your questions will take us next? <laughs>